0: You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HT Smartcast. This is part two of my conversation with Damon Santola, author of Change How to Make Big Things Happen. So, uh, clearly, you know, states like China understand this when they do, um, uh, when they send in whatever bots or th- those armies to kind of. Um, uh, change the conversation, which is another thing that we touched upon in the book.
1: Yeah, and this kind of goes to the the sort of question you were asking earlier about, you know, um, from really a moral point of view, you know, there's there's change that's sort of good, and there's, there's ways of using these kinds of um, scientific insights that are, you know, dangerous and what we would think of as, you know, bad. Um, and I think that that's true for all science, and as you know, as social science becomes more scientific, um, it, it runs the risk that all science, I mean, physics has the same problems. We can build, you know, atomic weapons now. Right. Um, And, uh, and it's really true for all serious scientific insights that they, they sort of can be used in a number of different ways. Um, And we haven't typically thought of social science as having that kind of power before, but now that we can do this kind of large scale kind of, causal science it leads to those sorts of questions which are fundamentally ethical questions about mm. how this work should be used and i think that's a very important thing for social scientists to take seriously one of the and that's why i discuss it in the book is because when we talk about tipping points they are almost always talked about as these sort of great things as these sort of social changes that happen and they're initiated and those are the examples that i focus on. It and I've just talked about with you so far, but um, it's absolutely true that the same dynamics, the same process, the same sort of underlying principles of tipping points can be applied in a way that we would think of soci- as socially harmful. Um, mm-hmm. And China has made sort of good use of that in, in a sense to control their population. And it's scary to see how effective it is um and what china does is they have what's called the 50 cent party which is a group of um government employees who spend a lot of time on the chinese version of facebook which is called Sino weibo um yeah. and they have fake accounts um and when people start talking about um complaints about the government or more specifically talking about you know specific uh, uprisings against the mm. government um Instead of just attacking those people, which would make the these government employees sort of conspicuously pro-government, what they do instead is they just change the conversation. It's basically a non sequitur. They talk about like a parade or, you know, how beautiful the fireworks were, like at, at some recent celebration. Um, and you can imagine if you think about, you know, like during Black Lives Matter, how bizarre it would have been for people in that conversation to just start talking about a parade. It just they would have been, you know. Pushed out of the conversation, but what the Chinese government does that's so uh, strategic is they have lots of people, lots of their workers, simultaneously coordinating on a new conversation. Um, so they're all talking to each other about this this parade, and they're sort of what that does is it it changes the kind of the social norm of the conversation, and it seems at that point less acceptable to talk about you know, whatever event is happening or whatever uprising uh, may have just occurred. Um, mm. And instead, the conversation switch over, switches over to talk about, you know, how beautiful the fireworks were. Um, and, you know, they, they do this in a strategic way. They, they engage compelling topics um, about, you know, government reform, but like in a really neutral and sort of bland way um, that engage citizens and kind of pull them away from one conversation into another. And this is the same kind of social coordination process, but it's used as a way of dismantling um, attempts to sort of organize um, and has been really effective. And the most remarkable and kind of bizarre thing about the 50 Cent Party is that you would think that in order for this to be effective, um, it would need to be a secret. Uh, it would need to be something that the government was doing um, in, without anyone knowing about it. Uh, but they actually tell they tell their, their citizens that they're doing this. And uh, some colleagues of mine um, at Harvard did a nice study where they sort of showed um, how Um, you know, the 50 Cent Party sort of controls public opinion. And the government advertised the study and said, uh, look, look, what a good job we're doing at helping to, you know, advise and guide public opinion. Um, And and this is sorry.
0: Uh, No, I just laughed. I mean, you
1: know, (laughs) (laughs) it's unexpected. Um, But what what it turns out to be is an incredibly sophisticated strategy, because If the government lets everyone know that there are these secret government employees everywhere as part of the conversation, then it means that whenever anyone sort of says anything that um, seems like it may be one of these, you know, government people, then they get attacked, um, even if they're not a government person. And then the people who work for the government can attack regular citizens, accusing them of being 50 Cent Party members. And it creates this tremendous confusion about who is sincere and who is doing manipulative um, sort of work on social media. And Mm. that confusion actually um, prevents people from like figuring out what the actual topic of conversation should be, who's manipulating, who's not manipulating. And as a result, this sort of uh, strategy of distraction becomes like even more effective, because. Everyone is suspicious of everyone. So whatever people happen to be talking about probably is, you know, normal because, you know, you have to ferret out the, the 50 cent party members and there's no way to tell who they are. And so because there's all this confusion and this sort of uncertainty about who's sincere, you just kind of wind up defaulting to just talking about whatever the normal conversation appears to be. And it's a, it's, it's a kind of a twist on the way that we typically thought about um you know, social manipulation by totalitarian governments, but it is weirdly effective on social media.
0: Yes. We're going back to the idea of the influencer. Sure. You know, and so much money is spent on influencers in every industry, right? Because we believe that they're going to, but you say that they're not, they're not the key and they're not at the, you know, they're not the most important people, right? So how will this, how do you think this will change the way um, advertising would be, uh, you know, money would be allotted, you know. When I was reading the book, you know, I was particularly taken by how you did these experiments online. Yes. And, you know... That must have been so difficult to pull off, like especially that health thing uh, where people actually got started using using it. I think it's an app or some. Yeah. Yeah. So talk about that, because I I was thinking I was reading that bit and thinking, my God, just setting this up must have been difficult and then getting people to use it. So, you know, the challenge of that, how did you do it?
1: Well, it's less difficult now that I've been you know that I've been built this sort of scientific infrastructure, but at the time it was extremely difficult because there really wasn't any scientific tool or method for for doing this kind of study. Um, and I had at the, you know, I just, um, developed this new theory and I had, you know, published some papers showing how this theory, um, would work and making some very clear scientific predictions, um, which again is unusual for sociology, but I had, you know, I had a prediction about how, if you change the networks in a population, it would allow, you know, sort of this, this new kind of innovation to take off. Um, and, uh, and there was no way to test it. I mean... Historically, social scientists don't do large-scale experiments on, you know, um, populations, let alone, you know, replicate them again and again to show that there's an effect. And so um, it took about four years to build that to build that that first study. Um, and largely, the the hard part was was thinking of it was, you know, trying to devise a way where you could imagine, you know, studying people in a way that would be real, because the way social scientists historically do experiments we all think of like psychology experiments where you bring a person into, you know, a laboratory and you show them different images and maybe see if their their sort of responses are different, or you um, do a medical experiment where you give different people different drugs, or what, you know, some one group is the control group and they, they get a placebo, and the other group is the experimental group and they get a drug, and you see, you know, whether it's effective in, in um, you know, uh, preventing an illness or um, curing an illness. And that's kind of how we think of experiments as one at a time. But of course, what I wanted to study was how an entire population would change, how you could shift a social norm of like a group of people to a new norm um, mm-hmm. and how it would happen not in like kind of a clinical setting or a setting where, you know, everyone knew it was an experiment, but a setting that mm-hmm. just felt natural and real. And so what ultimately I had to do was, was essentially build a product. I just built, you know, I, what I noticed was that... Um, a lot of people um, were spending time, and uh, this was like around 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, mm-hmm. Online health communities were becoming very big. Uh, people mm-hmm. were just spending time talking to each other, and one of the the sort of I think strangest things for me at the time is I think a lot of people assumed that if you're interacting online, particularly with a stranger that it was gonna be this sort of superficial interaction. Nothing sort of real happened there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we all sort of have changed our mind about that. Real yeah. stuff does happen online. People organize social movements and people you know, um, make real sort of financial decisions. And, and the influences they're receiving online are actually consequential. But at that yes. time, people hadn't really cottoned on to that idea. And, um, and so what I realized was that people in health communities um, were influencing each other to, an, to a surprising extent, they were sharing their private medical data with each other. These were total strangers interacting you know, on a website and they were sharing their private medical data with each other, they're giving each other advice about what medications to take, it, it was phenomenal. Um, and people were listening, they were engaged because there were these sort of networks of relevant peers. And so um, that was a big, that was an epiphany for me really. I thought, well, I can, I can build one of these communities um, and I can use it as an experiment. Um, and people will come to it if it's a, you know, it's a well-constructed community that's useful, people will come to it, you know, not as an experiment, they don't need to be paid or anything. They'll just come to it because it's useful. Um, and an important thing here is there's, there's very clear ethics here with the science. Like if people are in an experiment, you have to tell them they're an experiment. That's absolutely necessary. In my opinion, um, Mm -hmm. there are some companies conducting experiments without telling people. And I, I think that that's unethical, um, Mm -hmm. And so, so what I did was this, I was at, you know, Harvard when I constructed this and I just, you know, called it the, the, you know, Harvard study on healthy lifestyle. And, um, and I told everyone, Yeah, you know, we made this, you know, massive campaign through all, all kinds of like health publications um, and, you know, health surveys and, um, you know, offices that were um, promoting health among their, um, among their clients, among their patients. And so there's this, there's a study of, you know, social networks and health and, you um, you know, I'm collecting your data, but it's, you know, it's the site that we're building to, to provide this service. Um, and like thousands of people came and signed up and joined um, and found it useful. Um, and what I did was then construct these social networks for people. So they had peers who were relevant to them who had you know also signed up, who had put in similar health interests. Um and, you know, the basic idea was, you know, even though people know they're in a study, what they're doing there, you know, with their, their experience is a real experience. They're just talking to other mm-hmm. people about their health interests and giving each other advice. And then I introduced they this new this new app, which we in that, that, you know, 2009, it wasn't called an app. We're calling that today. Basically, this, this new uh, health tools, online health tool um, into the community with, you know, a person. Uh, You know, a single person who who adopted it and then just notified their neighbors, their their sort of contacts in that community. um, Hey, this person, you know, adopted it Um, and then they could adopt or not. And then what I could watch, you know, and this is like if you imagine, you know, looking down at like a Petri dish or something you know, watching the growth of like penicillin, right, just like using this kind of little experimental space and just watching how the, the sort of dynamics unfold, then I could just watch it like looking looking down from above. And I ran multiple communities like this. And I could see how changing the networks in these communities, the pattern of connections among the people there directly and causally affected their adoption. Of this new health innovation, even though the people, you know, were randomized to condition, they were all basically the same type of people, um, and their sort of everything they knew about their social world was the same. It was just the networks, you know, that were basically invisible to people. They didn't know what the the pattern or the large scale connectedness looked like. They just knew they had a couple of people they were talking to about health stuff, and nevertheless, you saw these significant differences in whether or not people ultimately adopted, and that was you know, to my mind, it was this sort of new way of doing science where we can study these kinds of things in a a very effective um, and informative way. Um, And I built, you know, as I described in the other experiments I ran, I sort of built an entire scientific platform on doing these sorts of kind of large scale experiments on social change.
0: Ah, okay. And so things like, you know, fireworks and fishing nets. So that sort of insight kind of emerged from this, right?
1: yeah and so this is so where I started was um I had developed this you know theory theory of social change, but you know it doesn't really mean a lot in a sense because you know i was a a mathematical scientist and there's a lot of mathematical theories of social change they've been around for you know a very long time um and uh the whole question had been testing them no none i mean none of these theories had ever been tested you know so it it kind of gave i think social science a bad reputation because Everyone has a, everyone has a theory, but no one can test it. You know. Um, mm. And so that was kind of my, my big agenda was to sort of figure out a way of taking this counterintuitive theory about the way that networks, you know, the one kind of network looks like a fireworks explosion because they are basically ties going in all directions everywhere, which is, that is, you know, for the spread of something like COVID-19, those kinds of networks, wow, it just explodes in all directions. It looks like a fireworks <laughs> explosion um, versus a network that looks like a bunch of interlocked neighborhoods right Mm -hmm. and so that kind of network seems like well that's going to be you know much slower for spreading something um because it takes longer to get you know from from one person all the way to someone who's far away um but that doesn't take into account the fact that people need to be convinced they need some reinforcement they need to be able to see that the people around them are adopting it and this thing actually has credibility it's actually a good Mm -hmm. idea Um, and it's sort of socially legitimate and in a fireworks network Sure, you get exposed to something, but you don't really get any kind of social convincement from like reinforcing ties. You just, you know, you see it and you either adopt it or ignore it. But Mm. in this kind of, you know, overlapping kind of network of wide bridges, you get a lot of social reinforcement from the people you know to sort of say, hey, this thing is actually pretty credible. It's actually a pretty useful thing. And then you adopt and you add to the sort of the chorus of reinforcement for the other people in the network. And surprisingly, that is but, you know, even though that would be very slow for spreading COVID nineteen, it's really, really effective for spreading things like you know wearing face masks or spreading things like yes. vaccination. Yes. And, and I think that's one of the that the timing of this book is is interesting because it really highlights you know what, some of the paradoxes that we've seen in, in the last year that everyone's kind mm-hmm. of you know scratching their head over. They're like, well, COVID nineteen just exploded around the world, but face masks didn't spread like that they're like you know yeah. some communities adopting them and other communities not only not adopting them but like explicitly refusing to adopt them. Yes, you know and they're yes. like well so what happened you know it doesn't if everything spreads like a virus what's going on with face masks you know and it's like well face masks don't spread like a virus they do spread and there are rules but those rules are the rules of complex contagion of course and that's why i wrote the book was to explain how those kinds of spreading processes work and hopefully you know, give us a way to develop, you know, more effective policies when it comes to sort of the kinds of, you know, change we'd like to see.
0: Okay, great. I think um, we've had a really interesting conversation and your book's fascinating too. And I, I mean, I re- read it and I was thinking, gosh, you know, it had so many, it has so many applications. I mean, what you've said, and hopefully people will concentrate more on, you know, I, I suppose the idea of building bridges across communities, is having more allies if you want to spread a certain idea. It kind of makes it clearer, you know?
1: Yeah, and my hope is that it also gives people this sort of um, very clear idea of when they look around and they see the people around them, they think about, well, what's my best networking networking strategy? Um, Most of the books on, like, your best personal networking strategy have been written under the assumption of, you know everything spreads like a virus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and that that's true in our daily lives, and it's also true in business. People have been told, look, if you want to be a good networker in your company, make a lot of ties everywhere. You know, be a be a broker for information in your organization. And sure, you'll you know a lot of information will pass through you. But if you want to initiate a change in your organization, you're not going to have a lot of power because that mm-hmm. takes coordination, and you need the people that you're talking to who are like all over the place, to be able to coordinate with the people they know. And unless there are contacts between the people you know and the other people you know, there's no wide bridges. So everything, you know, information can spread, but a real change in the culture of an organization just fails. And people have seen this time and time again. One of the places that this these ideas, I think, are having the most immediate impact, I would say, just within the last few months is, um, you know, people who uh, work in, in organizational change and innovation are really excited about the sort of the ways in which they can build wide bridges, you know, in their organization.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So this is for the for the listeners. Everybody go out and get change how to make big things. I mean, I found it a very illuminating read, really. And uh, I know it'll make me think differently about, you know, movements and, uh, and how society works. Thank
1: you. Thank you for having me.